Western arrogance is feeling that we have everything to teach others yes. and nothing to learn from them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The way it's- It is awkwardly with, phrased. Yeah, it's awkwardly phrased, yeah. which like makes the, me think like it's the, part of something bigger. You yeah, know? you're like going, what is the arrogance of feeling? I don't right, know exactly. Right. exactly. That's what I was like, what is arrogance of feeling? Like, I, yeah, no, 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 Ooh. okay. Now I understand. It was- My feelings are better than yours. <laughs> That's kind of what I was going with. And I was like, well, actually, um, <laughs> that would still track. <laughs> Welcome to episode 216 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brew pint, a fine wine, or whatever happens to be in your glass. On today's episode, the Reverend Sogan Holder, Shannon Weston, and yours truly, Brian Burkoff, address and engage what's happening through a theological lens with a good brew in hand. Yes, welcome back, Ogan. So glad you're back. We missed you. Welcome back, Ogan. Yeah, we actually forgot. We forgot to tell where you were last week. I mean, you missed one episode, so <laughs> I not, mean, hey, it's, listen, it's 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 all good. It's all good. I will miss me and welcome you back on your behalf. It's all good. <laughs> not taking personally at all. Uh, so whether you're a longtime listener to the show or you're new, uh, you can get some more content and also in doing so support the work that we're doing. So just start at seven dollars a month. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash PT live. And as a thank you for becoming a patron, you get a pint glass at a certain level. Anybody got a pint glass? I don't have a pint glass. Anybody got a pint glass to show our video viewers? There you go. Um, and we get some pre and post show uh, extra content. Today we had great conversations about sports and COVID. It's a whole thing. Uh, so tune in for things like that. So that's patreon.com slash PT live. We are recording a day early and this is um, a Martin Luther King day, day that we celebrate his birth and his legacy. And that is what we were discussing today. So there you go, friends. Um, so what are we drinking today? Ogan, since you're newly back in the States. No, don't try to dig yourself out the hole now. It's too late. Uh, um, because- I didn't write the script. Hey, I stick to the script. I, you know, it just doesn't change. So I, I, I didn't write it. Anyway, so what you drinking? Because we are recording a day early, and it it interfered with my plans to go run out and refresh the refrigerator with beer. Well, um, I am I am hitting this gift that I got last year, uh, some contradiction bourbon. Oh uh, yeah. So I'm, I'll be I'll be sipping on this neat uh, while we are conversing. So to that's it. what I get. Very nice. Brian, what are you drinking? Well, I also have not been uh, to the store, so I'm bringing back the local IPA, otherwise known as the Locale IPA, which Mm -hmm. Shannon loves. (laughs) I, um, it was a snow-ish, snowy, icy day the last two days, um, and didn't get to the store, nor would I have gotten to the store tomorrow. So I'll be honest about that. Um, but I am drinking the last mad elf in the house. So yeah. the last of our Christmas stash, Sweet. Um, which I just should, I, I was going to drink last week, but I had a meeting after I couldn't be a 9% alcohol beer for. So 
that's what I'm. So, and we de-Christmased today. Nice. So did you? We did. Sweet. We de-Christmas today. So this is my celebratory. No more Christmas. Which like always, the Steelers I, season is over. That means the officially all the decorations can come down. You know, um, Derek, how's Derek doing with that? I saw the I saw the headline. I, you know, I don't do football, but I saw the headline. And I was like, "Ooh, Derek must not be doing well today." Well, here's the deal. He was he actually didn't want them to win last week. He was actively oh. rooting for the Ravens, and then and then he was like, so there were like 50 things that had to happen in order for the Ravens to get to the playoffs. And like, we weren't going to the playoffs, even if we won the Ravens Steelers game, mm-hmm. there were two things that had to happen for Pittsburgh to get there. They had to beat the Ravens and the Colts had to beat the Jaguars. Or the reverse. The Jaguars had to beat the Colts. Yeah. Which, which felt no. impossible. No, no, no. The Colts had to beat the Jaguars in order for the Steelers to go to the playoffs. Do you understand the inherent contradiction in that? What One of those happened things. was the Jaguars ended up beating the Colts and Pittsburgh beat Baltimore. So he was actually kind of mad last week because that meant that this team, this team, which has not been very good, was going to the playoffs and they got destroyed last night. The only way the Steelers were going to go is if the Colts lost. And that's what happened. Regardless, okay, you are right. Those things happen. You are right. No, no, no. You are. You are right. The, but it was I unexpected, think, which is what I think you were trying to say. But I think I was saying, okay, we haven't recorded. So what I meant to say was that the Colts beat the. I'm. Never mind. I listeners. I, apo- I apologize that I opened Pandora's box here. This is <laughs> on me, and I'm not even the football fan here. Listen. Anyway, the point is, the point is, is that he surprisingly is sad today even though he really didn't want him to go in the playoffs to begin with. So I was surprised because I was sitting there last night with both Thomas and Derek, who were very, very sad saps last night going, of course they were going to get beat. Like, of course you were getting your play yourselves. Like here's your hat where like, there's the door, the whole, like, well, it doesn't matter if you know, it's coming. It's still sad when it happens, you know, I don't know. Seriously. Like, I felt yeah. like they had unrealistic expectations. Those are the best kind. <laughs> anyway, so that is what's going on today. And I got told right before I came up here when I asked him if he was okay yet again, he, I said, do you want me to stop asking that? He's like, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I will stop. I'll stop. On to today's topics. Well, so Brian, this... you're leading the yeah. discussion. Topics I'm, I'm going. Today. I'm going. Did you know? Did you know Martin Luther King Jr. was an avid pool player? And if you were given a choice of only one, would you prefer to play pool or billiards, table tennis, darts, or foosball? I'm curious about these choices. These seem like, I don't know, where do, are these? Are these, I think what, these what? are things you play in a bar. Yeah, they're kind of like, yeah, bar recreation type games. Gotcha. Okay. All right, all right, all right. I uh, go table tennis all the way agreed it's it's a it's a it's a it's a slight differential between table tennis and pool but i would lean table tennis because i'm actually better at it than pool it's just it's more fun to me it's more active but i don't see a lot of table tennis tables in bars i see them in outdoor bars like bars that are big like that have we have this bar near us that has like five bars in it you know and it's got like an outside 
like there's a you can do beach volleyball there and you can mm. like i think there's a table like game area there it's kind okay. of like bar slash basement games or something That's, okay yeah That's this so- is man cave games yeah <laughs> ah okay, there we go there we go i got it now I got and it. or and man cave and or youth group room yes yes so i i would agree with you both i'd go table tennis number one um probably pool second and it, and it kind of depends on the mood like if you're having a beverage and it's more low-key then pool might be preferable but but i love to play ping pong slash table tennis so. so i probably would have said pool and then the summer when i was with my family my cousins and and I and Derek were all playing ping pong um, table tennis, and we had a blast. Like a, bl- I mean, we had so much fun. So that's where it got moved up in my rank. Okay, I've I have a bonus question for you. Yeah. Do you think MLK would have loved cornhole? <laughs> Whoa, it's coming to left field. I mean, no. I can see him we, at a church picnic. I can see exactly him like he would totally be into some cornhole, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I I don't know. Or is it the pool? Is it like the, the strategy? Like, that's the thing. Like people that love pool, love strategy. So so also follow up question. Am I drinking while I'm playing these games? Cause that also makes a difference. Hey, pass me a beer. I am. Yeah. I think it's preferred. (laughs) Okay. I don't know whether he was. Cause, cause I think if I'm drinking, I might have to go foosball first. Because I think I think I think that's the one that requires the least amount of aim, <laughs> just, concentration. You just, you just spin in and hoping for the best. I have never done well in foosball, ever, ever. I don't even. I I can almost understand how you would do well in foosball, but I think you need like yeah. twelve hands. I don't like. I, don't I like it, but I think I'd choose the other three. I'd even rather do darts than foosball. I think. I would like darts if I understood how to score the game. I have read those instructions. Yeah, don't make sense. <laughs> multiple times. They make no sense. Well, there's multiple games you can play. Still don't make it's sense. Ridiculous. <laughs> there, there's some fun games. Uh, darts is fun. All right. I could get into some darts, but I I need to understand the game. First. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. So in his autobiography, uh, Martin Luther King wrote, at the age of 13, I shocked my Sunday school class by denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Doubts began to spring forth unrelentingly. Yet, as we know, he'd go on to become a minister, a Baptist minister, and get a doctorate in theology. So does it surprise you about MLK and um, maybe discuss the role that doubt has in any and or your own spiritual journey. I mean, who hasn't doubted the bodily resurrection of Christ? Come on, that's like that's like part of the part of the uh I would almost say a, a given. Um yeah, if you're, but if, if you're, southern if baptist circles. Listen, if you're doing Christianity right, you, at some point you question it. Even if you don't outright deny it or or step away from it, you question it. Uh I I I got in trouble with the congregant once by by saying this at Easter, nonetheless, that, you know, whatever you believe is okay. But where I am personally is that um, I've gone back and forth, but where I was at the time and still am is no, I don't believe in the bodily resurrection. And, and, and she came into a meeting with me later that week and said she was going to stop tithing to the church because Mm. she needed, she needed a minister who believed 
in the, now granted we're we're unity okay we're not Southern i was gonna Baptist. say think about what happens when you do that in another denomination <laughs> we, right we are <laughs> like like we we are we are out there in terms of christianity i like to say christianity is a big tent and unity is like a tent flap in the breeze right we're we're we're, we're that removed from a lot of those like central literal premises of christianity but she's like i need my minister to believe jesus resurrected so i'm not tithing she goes i'm still gonna come to church <laughs> and i still love about like 80 90 of what you say but but that's the thing for me. And my response was, well, then give 80, 90% of what you usually give. Why are you punishing us all? And she actually said, you know, I had thought about it that way, but you're right. I'm I'm gonna do that. It's like, oh my oh, God. okay. <laughs> Listen, man. And people wonder why I left church. But um I I I think that's okay. I I think doubt is the beginning to true faith not not the not the the, the and, opposite of faith is certainty not not doubt doubt yeah. helps solidify your faith and i don't even think it's the start of a, a journey i think i mean it's it's there um there are countless theologians i did a series years ago on a paul tillich book which was i do not recommend by the way like preaching paul tillich is very difficult in the congregation nonetheless um but it it was called faith and doubt and the like or belief in doubt or something. And the whole premise is, is that if, if you're not doubting along the way or asking these serious questions, um, then you don't have faith, you have certainty and we should not be having certainty. We should be having faith yeah. and we should believe. And, and I think that like Ogan said, you can both stand up and preach and believe in the tenets of these faith and do all of these things and still say, I don't know about all that. Like, I don't, I mean, let's be really, really honest. The bodily resurrection is really hard to grasp that. I mean, the fact that we just ask people to just believe that and call it a day is ridiculous. Yeah. And then, yeah. And yeah. and not only that, but then basically shame them for not having enough faith if they don't. Right. That's that's the one that I'm yes. not a fan of. What I want to see is somebody who says, I don't know if I believe in the bodily resurrection, but, you know, I'm going to just let that be what it is for now. I don't need to know an answer. I don't need to dissect every inch of that but here's what i do know i do know that i really like the tenets of these faiths i really i really like who this guy was and i also really want to like through study and understanding get to the point where i understand why this story would have been so important whether or not there was a physical nature of it or not yeah. why why is this story so pivotal in our faith i would rather you do that than have this certainty that this happened in this way. Yeah, I, I agree, Shannon. Yesterday uh, in my sermon, I, I shared a lot of the doubts that I had at various points in my own, you know, journey. And, and I got the most reaction to a sermon I've gotten in a, long, in a while. And I think people were just glad to hear that voiced on Sunday during a sermon, because I think it affirmed, you know, where they are and or have been. And it's just refreshing to know that pastors are real people. They have questions. They don't know the answer to all these things and that that's okay. 
and that you're a perfectly normal human being. And that's, you know, it may be even a good place to be spiritually. Not only is it okay, that's the way it should be. Yeah. yeah. It, right. You know, you want you you want your spiritual leader to be someone who's also continuing mm. their journey, their growth, their yeah. deepening, their understanding. And and that comes through doubt because you have to question. Yeah. Well, and why do we shame people for saying, I question the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but we don't shame people for saying that wedding at Cana story, I like really water into wine. Like, I don't, come on. Like, I don't think that happened or Saul's ghost really didn't appear to David in the cave and blah, blah. Well. Like, <laughs> like we don't shame people for questioning those things. We shame people for the virgin birth and we shame people for the bodily resurrection. Yeah. And we don't, we don't shame people in the same way for not just automatically fully believing you know, all of well, these. I mean, come things. on, all, all miracles are not created equal. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying? Water, water to wine, eh, small potatoes coming back from the dead. That's a, a big little more riding on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I would like to be able to turn water into wine. Well, Although, yeah, I'm like, with you, Shannon. Like in <laughs> terms <laughs> of in terms of being, you know, the money makers in one place and then the, you know, the awe factor and whatnot. I don't know. About and the part, you know, keeping the party going, you know, mm. it always, you know, it, it, it always, when I was growing up and, and at this age also like MLK having doubts and questions. And, you know, there was always the whole thing about drinking is a sin. Can't drink, drink yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad, all that sort of stuff. And I always ask, then why was Jesus's first miracle turning water away? That doesn't make sense to me. Right. No, no, no. And I, I will say this, especially about a pastor, right? So it, it, let's just, for this moment, um, pretend that MLK was just any other pastor. But I would be suspect of any pastor or am suspect of any pastor that is not, does not have these moments of doubt or does not, um, or that is unable to confess them, you know, and that just goes along with everything every, everybody, including scripture says, I would actually say, then how are you going to stand up and preach? And how are you going to relate to anybody? Because but, that's just not yeah. the way it goes. And, and it's not so much the pastors not having the doubts. It's about sharing them because, because for me, that's where, that's where I take issue. I, you know, pastors, ministers who have the doubt, but get up on Sunday morning and preach certainty. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it's interesting because I remember when I was in seminary, you know, one of the teachings that I don't agree with was that they were like, don't, don't work through your doubts on the pulpit. Like you don't, your, your, your congregants don't need to see you wavering or, or seeing your, your struggles or seeing you struggle with what you, whatever it is you're going through. They, they want someone to inspire and reassure them. And, and I was like, oh, I don't know about that, you know, kind of, now I understand you don't, you don't want to like, like, it's not therapy. It's right. You don't want to do therapy <laughs> right. in front of your congregants. That's right. that's and and I think maybe that's what they were trying to say. Yeah. But they didn't phrase it that way. And I'm like, no, we 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 want them to see us and and hear about our struggles to, to Brian's to Brian's point because because a lot of I think a lot of times we are already up on a pedestal. Yeah. <laughs> for for just for just I mean, you know putting the a collar lot of times on quite literally. Quite like, literally, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so we we I don't think we need to 
um, perpetuate that myth by thinking we got it all figured out. Yeah, I mean, there's a certainly there's a line that you want to try to figure out the, the appropriate side of because we often talk about vulnerability being an important part of of human relationships and growth and um, authenticity, and so you want to model that, but at the same time, you don't need to share every last detail of your personal life either. So it, it is finding that appropriate place of sharing you know, challenges, struggles in your personal spiritual life uh, that that people can relate to and need to hear without it sort of crossing over into inappropriateness. Indeed. Yeah. And I just one last word about that. I think that we often equate vulnerability with personal sharing and those are not yes. necessarily the same mm. thing no, at not. all. Oh, say and, more. And, well, and I, I think MLK's life is a good or his preaching that I have heard his all that I've read and in, in his sermons that I've heard, he has shared his struggle, but he didn't necessarily share what was going on in his personal life that day, right? Yeah. And we know from whatever that good, bad, or ugly, he was an imperfect man. And he's not up there going, you know, I've blah, 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 or this is what, but he's he's relaying struggle, like this is what I've wrestled with. He's, I, I love the story of the, um, I have a dream speech, of the woman, like he's struggling. He's struggling to, if you listen to the whole speech, he's struggling to connect with the crowd because it's it's not a church crowd, right? It's this huge March on Washington, it's huge whatever. And he's almost giving this, it's, he's at theory level, you know, right? He's giving the, he's theorizing about the future and whatever. And this woman screams, tell him about the dream, Martin. And that's that, when he- That woman, that woman was yes. Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson, thank you. Who actually, that was what I was going to say. And then I was like, no, no, it wasn't. Don't say that. Um, You're like, right. I, I Go with the right. instinct. Go with the but instinct. I, I know, but I, I, I always second guess those instincts. Yes, Mahalia Jackson, who sang earlier in the program, you know, and she comes out with telling about the dream, Martin, and he starts going, right? And that's the moment. That's vulnerability. Yeah. That's the vulnerability to say, this isn't working. I'm going to connect with you on this personal level now. So let me tell you about this dream that I have rather than, you know, like all of this very theological and systematic justice things that are good and very interesting to an academic, but aren't in the moment connecting with the crowd because it's not vulnerable in the moment. Anyway, that's, that's to me, one of the big things about vulnerability and that's what people connect with that and his words are pretty fantastic so you know whatever absolutely <laughs> so he also said uh that the western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just so where have you sort of sensed that in our society uh in what places um, and where have you, yeah, where have you experienced that? Well, the question I want to ask is when, when he says the Western arrogance, I'm air quoting for the folks who yeah. are listening, the Western arrogance, is he talking about white folk? He is talking about white folk. Just checking. <laughs> just, want, just want to be clear. Cause, well, cause I he's think talking that's about a, Western, he's talking about manifest destiny, Westernized world. I, I understand, but, but that's a very, that's that, that, idea is 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 a very like what i would call it like a white supremacy thinking idea right that yeah that i know that that i know better as a white person 
not I as a white person, because I'm not, but <laughs> that white, that white thought of we know better, we are superior, we have nothing to learn from you, you are less than we are. And 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 when I read when I read that quote, that's that's what comes to mind uh, for me. I don't know what the context was in which he shared this. Um, so it'd be interesting to 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 uncover. Was this like a sermon? Who was he talking to? What was going on? But but yeah, I think I, I think I, maybe I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that's absolutely right, Ogan. I think maybe it was in the context of of talking about like foreign policy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. sort of. You know, we're this young nation relative to so many other countries in the world, and yet we have this arrogance that we know how things should be and should go and, and have the power to sort of enforce but I think our will. That that's not indistinguishable from from America from whiteness, from American oh, whiteness. Of course, yeah. People right? in those roles were by and large white. Exactly. Because look at all the countries where the Americans have made a mess, I mean a real mess of their foreign policy. It's usually countries with People who aren't white, non-white, right? Yeah. Vietnam, places in the Middle East, like it's yeah, we 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 ain't doing this with like Europe. We ain't doing this with with countries that are predominantly uh, white-bodied folks. So I think I think the overlap is 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 so huge there that it's 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 one and the same. But and and but I think it's also a reflection of yes, foreign policy, but also domestic policy. Speaking at a time where domestic policy is still in in this white supremacy idea at the time that that you know that that he was alive and, and fighting for for civil rights um, a little bit today as well. So uh, I don't I'm, think the two are indistinguishable from each other. I'm not sure I understand this quote. To be honest, I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable and say that um, is the Western arrogance our feelings like the western arrogance of feeling no 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 it's it's the western arrogance. The feeling that it has western arrogance is feeling that we have everything to teach others yes. and nothing to learn from them okay yes. yeah. the way it's it is awkwardly with, phrased yeah it's awkwardly phrased yeah. which like makes the, me think like it's the, part of something bigger you yeah know? you're like going what is the arrogance of feeling I don't right. know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I, I was like that what is arrogance of feeling like i yeah no 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 okay now I understand it was my feelings are better than yours. <laughs> That's kind of what I was going with. And I was like, well, actually, um, <laughs> that would still track with westernized America and whatever else. And oh, I was going to go on a whole Boris Johnson Trump thing, but I'm not going to do that now. You could replace um, feeling with imagining. Yes. But like, yes, the Western arrogance of. Yes. OK, feeling. I got I, Believing, believing that believing, it has believing, feeling, yeah. thinking, whatever. Yeah, thinking that, but the the point is, is that our arrogance is that we have everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them, it, and I find that really interesting. Um, and I wonder, I I do wonder if that's a political statement in the sense that, like, um. I don't actually, now I take it back. I don't know that he's just talking about whiteness there. I think he's talking about white maleness there and the and specifically those in power. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And the time that he would have been talking, those in power would have been all white males. Yep. Yes. Um, and that that, yeah, I think it makes sense that this quote is in the quote is in the context of foreign policy. Um, because I don't know. Yeah, I, 
And and it makes me and it makes me think like I'm sitting here thinking and granted, the news tends to always sensationalize the things that go wrong. Yeah. But can we point to some examples of successful U.S. foreign policy in like the last 50 years? Like, where has it gone well? Um, East Berlin. <laughs> yeah. OK. That one. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, like there are some like I'm not I wouldn't go so far to say there aren't any. I would. Yeah. But that's that's I'm, I'm I'm assuming East Berlin or uh, you mean when the wall came down? Yeah, Is that what, yeah, you, yeah, what yeah. you're referring to? Okay. Yeah, East Germany. Yeah. East Germany. Um, all right. Um, I'm just I, sorry. That was the one that popped in my head. No, like, but and I was Mr. legitimately off. Tear down that wall. Yes, I was, right. I like, was. I, I, and I will have to like dive into the history and go like, how much credit does the I, U.S. I know that we were involved. All of that exactly. But I think when the statue of Saddam got pulled down, that felt like a big moment. We all know how that ended. <laughs> <laughs> I think the ending is still being written. Yeah, exactly. No, I think I I actually think that, see, this is all relative, right? There would have been a time where in Afghanistan, we you would have said that was successful foreign policy. Then the U.S. I don't know, that never went well. It well in terms of when Russia was trying to invade them and we helped keep Russia out and then we destroyed we left their country destroyed and 20 years went by and then they were at war with us again like do you know what I'm saying like so I think this Mm -hmm. is all very relative and even that even that was a 30 year span 40 it's still going so right 40 plus year span of history that's not over yet that will be told as one big arc right and the point I'm making with that is that in spite of this record of foreign policy that that not a lot of success in the success column, I think the Western American mind is still thinking we know what to do. Well, so now let, let me name this, right? Is that the Western American mind believes that we won World War II, right? That that is what we are taught. Yeah, thanks to the U.S. Right. Thanks to the U.S. The sleeping giant was awakened, and we came in and saved the day. And we came in and saved the day. (laughs) And if you read real history, that is not what happened. Now, did we drop a bunch of really horrific, awful bombs? Absolutely. Did that end the war? Not exactly. Like anyway, just so yes, I think that there is an arrogance that we, I, I. I'm not trying to undo any of like what you're saying. I actually absolutely agree. Right. I I think what we see a lot is us swooping in saying you need to be a democratic country because democracy is the best kind of country. And then we, by the way, every country we've ever done that in has a parliament system because Mm -hmm. everyone now agrees that that is the better system in democracy not what the United States is. Yeah, and by the way, we'll first come in and destroy your infrastructure and then see how things go. And then help you rebuild it. And you'll and we very white savior that shit, right? Like, but I also think this could very well be in the context or applied to certainly um, Christian missions out of the US yes. where we brought our Western culture and tied that to the faith and brought in this hubris that our version of Christianity is the version of Christianity and it's what you need more than your indigenous religion or your, you know, whatever culture you already have, ours is better. So we're just going to come in and convert you to all these things instead of going to serve as listeners and students. And can we help in any way? And if not, maybe we should get out of here. No, I agree with that as well. Um, 
listener Tim on Facebook um, has suggested the Marshall Plan as an example of U.S. foreign policy that was successful, which Marshall Plan wasn't that is that like wasn't, that's post World War II, right? So after World War II, helping rebuild Europe, that whole Europe, I think. Um, idea. So I will fully. I, I want to just fully acknowledge that I do not know enough about foreign policy to have this discussion, right? Like I'm not. I'm not a history expert at all. I'm I'm not either. And I'm not currently running for office, so I can be ignorant too. <laughs> Everything I know <sighs> is United States history came from Hamilton. So there you go. <laughs> oh my God. We're in trouble. We are in trouble. But I'm all not right. running anything like that. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fine. There you go. So throughout the 1960s, the scope of Dr. King's uh, activism went beyond civil rights and into economic justice. As we know, he increasingly used his platform to advocate for things like guaranteed annual income and health care, a couple of things which are still debated today. But he also increasingly vocalized his strong opposition to the Vietnam War, which caused him to lose a significant amount of American approval so it's worth thinking about the conviction uh, and speak about this, the conviction it took for him to openly speak against U.S. foreign policy in the war, specifically when it turned public opinion against him and potentially, some said, it would detract from progress being made on civil rights and other issues. One of my favorite photos of him is with Muhammad Ali, uh, mm-hmm. supporting him when uh, Muhammad Ali was also not um going to war going to the vietnam war and and stripped of his titles and all that stuff which was a disaster um yes i think you're right we we tend to we tend to have this narrow focus of of mlk is dealing only with civil rights but 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 all these things you said it goes beyond civil rights and into economic justice the 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 two are not the two are not indistinguishable from each other economic justice is a civil right um so so i think um and i think interestingly enough yes it did take a lot of conviction and courage and it was the thing that also led to his fall again in popularity towards uh, the later years before he was assassinated, he was people were increasingly um, turning away from him um, and and trying to elevate others within the civil rights movement. He was becoming increasingly uh, isolated um, as well. But I think it goes to speak to he had a he had a bigger vision of of equality in this nation and realized. Um, above all else, it began with transforming every single policy within the U.S. I keep reminding people that the March on Washington was about jobs, was about economic justice um, as, as, as well, or, or primarily. Um, but but we, we tend to forget that a little bit because, to Shannon's point earlier, that when, when he went off script and made the I have a dream speech and it became really about this vision of racial equality, that's the part we glom onto. But and 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 when we talk numbers and policies and economics, I mean that's some like some boring ass dry stuff that does not it's not as engaging, right? It's not as captivating, it's not as inspiring, but that's where the work is is done. Um that's the whole premise of uh Imbram yeah. 
Ibram Kendi's work, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, you know, anti-racism is about the policies. It's about the policies. Are the policies producing results that 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 sh- that bring equity or inequity? And if it's inequity, then that's that's where systemic racism shows up, and we have to change the policies, which is about honestly changing the politicians and voting in people who who stand on that place. Good luck in twenty twenty two, Brian. No, twenty twenty three. When are you running again? No, actually, just today I talked to somebody who's running uh, this year. It's twenty twenty two in Congress every two years, but I am not running, thankfully. You're not. You're not this time around. All right, we'll see you next time around. <laughs> I I was just looking up. I was trying to remember Martin Luther King's last speech. Um, was like is often um his his final speech is a condemnation mm-hmm. in so many words and a lot of people said so much so that they like there were a lot of indications that he felt like he they knew this was his last speech um to the point that like he almost didn't go right it was raining so hard and blah 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 and he didn't want to go at all he was afraid to leave the hotel room and then they kind of said listen everybody's waiting and this this speech was one that he'd given you know he had like a several stump speeches um but it was it this wasn't was extra right where he compares the united states to the roman empire and and very much calls it an empire and and that it will fall and um and names a lot of anyway it's a speech worth reading and one of the things that happened is that um year a couple years ago when jeremiah wright you know gave that sermon the goddamn america sermon first off i i also commend you to go read that sermon the whole sermon um and it is very similar very similar, not in plagiarism way, but in tone yeah. to King's last speech. And anyway, I just, I lift those things up to say like this idea of a preacher or a public figure or a speaker, but specifically a religious leader who is in the public eye saying unpopular things. That is absolutely their job. Like, yeah. I mean, in so many ways, King was America's conscience in this level, on this level. And so to to expand from racial justice to economic justice, you have to talk about healthcare. I mean, part of the reason, not part of the reason, the biggest thing that kept racial inequality going still keeps racial inequality going today is, so, is economic issues, yeah. issues of economic yeah. justice. That's right. It was always used to oppress. And war is the same thing. I mean, who still, who fights our wars? I mean, if you look at it, there are, there are still places in this country where a lot of children's choices are military or prison. Yeah. The boots, the boots on the ground are primarily the poor and the most of the poor are the minorities. Exactly. There, yep. There's not a connection. Um, um, I'm glad you said what you said about, about um being popular or saying the unpopular things. King has uh, two quotes that that come to mind from uh, King. He said, there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, 
but one must take it because it's right. And he also says, the church must be reminded it is not the master or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. It must be the guide, the critic of the state, and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Oh. And, 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 and I think when we, and, and I, share, I share this in my, uh, when I was speaking uh, in my sermon yesterday, um, when we ask why churches have shrunk in size and have disappeared mm-hmm. and have less people attended and so on, I think it's because of this. We, 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 we've become um, many churches attached to the wrong thing or, or the wrong values or, or, or we don't want to stir, stir the, the pot. Yeah, I think we that's a big one. It, we, we just want to keep it yeah. comfortable for folks to keep showing up. And we have done this. We've become irrelevant social clubs. A thousand percent. <laughs> I know? mean, look at how long it, it, I mean, we still have issues talking about race in church still yeah. to this day. Look how long it took uh, uh, many of us to speak out and to actually legislate in our own polities, the LBGTQ community to say, no, no, we're not, you know, we're going to take an open stance and yeah. And, and how long it took, maybe a few voices banging pipes and drums and whatever, but how long as a whole it took us. I just, I think, you know, with a lot of leaders, what happened to King and is, you know, the Civil Rights um, Act was passed and they said, great, we did that now, sit down and be quiet. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't, as he shouldn't have, yeah. right? Like that piece of paper was not enough. And he knew it and everybody knew it, but we dealt with that. You got your wish. Now be quiet. And we don't want to see you again. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, in, in speaking about the conviction it took and the, and the courage, you know, because he was instigating and getting on the wrong side of the powers that be our own government. And in the end, it cost him his life. And, you know, that's a kind of courage that I aspire to have, but I've never been in that position where I have the audience he has and where what I say may end up uh, compromising my own safety and the safety of my family. And so for him to go ahead and stick to his guns, that's a bad analogy, stick to his conscience and keep speaking to those things is incredible. It's really incredible. And our next topic, our next question, we can keep this going. Hold on, I I do want to keep it going, but I want to say one thing, Brian. You have been in that position more than I have, or maybe even Ogan has. Like your family was threatened after November's election, November 2020's election. Like you all were in a dangerous position for speaking out for what you believed. Now, what you believe just happened to be member of Democratic Party running for office necessarily. But like you were attacked in that way that at least I haven't been publicly. And and I'm not I'm not gonna lie to you when I hear about those sort of threats. Um, I don't, I, I always, I always used to think though, those are just people making a lot of noise. We don't take them seriously. And then January 6th happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I saw that, I was like, holy shit. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe we just, maybe we shouldn't just assume that these are people who are angry and spouting off and not going to do anything yeah. because, you know, and here we, here we are a year, you know, we just, we just observe a year of, of that insurrection and they're still, you know, working on sorting that whole mess out, still arresting people. Not enough. I can't imagine 
you know, and, and let's be clear, let's be clear, as much as it is very clear in the Constitution that that what happened was an attempted insurrection and that's illegal. I'm just looking at all these all these folks who who, who stormed the Capitol are basically getting slaps on the wrist. Yep. And I maintain that if those were people of color, there'd be some serious jail time being handed down. I'm just going to put that on there. Amen. Yes. Amen. Well, they wouldn't have walked away alive. Let's put it honest about that. There's that too. And I just saw a reminder in my Facebook memory that the, the United Church of Christ and probably your denomination too, Shannon, put out after January 6th last year, a, a notice that said, we have received word of threats to liberal slash progressive mm-hmm. churches mm-hmm. that we want you to take seriously. And they gave two specific dates, like in the week following January 6th. And so yeah. any of us sort of, you know, trying to speak out for our principles in this time, like in some ways you, you don't want to take anything for granted in Yeah. And I don't want to compare any, I mean, I really don't, I don't want to compare any of this to the threats that MLK got in this process, you know, whatever. But I am saying that we are actually, I'm finding more this period of time, the last couple of years, we are living more in a time where these threats are real than before they were, they were very, very isolated. Right. I mean, there was a, I remember in one of my first couple of years of ministry, there was a church shooting and just for several weeks after any time a visitor walked in the door, like I know like my body tensed, you know, but they were so isolated. Whereas these acts, whether it's vandalism or whether it's threats, I mean, for you guys and not to speak too much, but like they knew where you lived, they would come to your house and you got to register your address with the, with the FEC. Exactly. And they would, they would leave stuff at your house and things like that. And thank goodness, nobody ever took it further than just threats, but you know, that I, I remember being very scared for you and your family during that time. Yeah, I, I, I think I had blocked that from my memory. I like. think you had too. And I think you had to, <laughs> you know, like I remember, like, even at the time you're like, oh yeah, that's happening. You know, I was and now saying, I remember we, ha- when we were doing church online, you know, from our home, we had people from our church come in our driveway to sort of just be there as sort of bodyguards while the service yeah. was happening because okay. we were worried. So, so, so I am assuming that this is perhaps whether you've blocked it out or not playing a part in your decision not to run again so far. Yeah, I'm sure it's partly true. Cause that's, that's, that's a legit and, and, you know, it, and it's weird because, you know, we're talking about, about Martin Luther King and, and the conviction he had in spite of all the threats that came his way at a time when, and a time when those sort of threats and actions were much more legitimized in the South, right? Um, that he still put his life and his family on the line in that way. And, and, and there's that part, and, and there are some people today who, who may be doing that as well. I think of people like, uh, you know, uh, Al Sharpton, uh, Reverend William Barber, you know, we have, we have those ministers who are like, front line and center or you know and i and and i'll speak for myself sometimes it makes me feel like man i i i don't i don't i don't feel as as brave and as great because honestly i'm not willing to do that i remember when uh you know after you know i've been i've been to some marches but i remember when after george floyd was uh, murdered and um you know it was the height of the marches and and the height of protests 
and 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 things were and you know there were skirmishes happening at protests and fighting and stuff and stuff like that and i remember going feeling to myself i should be out there and then going i don't know that i don't know if i would forgive myself if something happened to me i'm i'm my kid's only parent left mm-hmm. right now whether whether it was a quote unquote excuse to not do that or a legitimate reason you know the what i what i would say to anyone is is don't shame yourself right don't 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 compare yourself and feel like you are lesser than because you are not doing what martin luther king did or any other person did it's 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 about doing what you're capable of doing what you feel safe doing and ultimately what matters uh, most in the end is if you were if you were a family person, you know, is the question is, is it worth sacrificing your family for the cause? Is it worth you sacrificing yourself from your family for the cause? And and only you, only you, the individual can answer that. And there's no wrong answers there. Yeah. Because so if, if, if I were to if I were to be that out there and something happened to a uh, like my daughter or some close family member as a result, I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do with myself. I don't know if I would like finally lose it, break it and and go take someone's life. I don't know if I would like spiral into this pit of depression and, and, or, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, uh, there's, there's, I, again, n- no shame, no embarrassment for anyone who says, you know what, I'm, I'm putting my family's, and concern is about my family's life and safety paramount. Yeah, that's that's very fair. And we didn't read this part yet, but um, Martin Luther King went to prison uh, around 29 times and nearly all of them were for civil disobedience. And uh, so Ogan's highlighting, you know, how far am I willing to go and what, you know, repercussions or potential threats am I willing to face for my convictions and, and where do I draw that line? And so the question is, how many clergy members or, or even friends, non-clergy members, do you know who have gone to prison today for that same kind of reason, for you know protesting, for rallying, for speaking up? And if you were to be imprisoned for pro- protesting an issue, what issue do you think that would be? Well, I remember before I became a citizen, when I was just a legal resident, mm-hmm. I was always like afraid of, if I go get arrested, does this mean I'm getting deported? Exactly. Yeah, right. right. So, so there wasn't, so that was the first thing. And then it was, yeah, I'm my kid's only parent. So like she, she needs me around. Uh, she's about to be a college senior and she's going to be on our own. So I might get, and I'm a U.S. citizen now. So I might get myself up into some trouble. Oh yeah. There you go. There you go. I, but I just, I, and, I, just might. <laughs> and I want to be honest about civil disobedience, not that it's not a charge and a real charge and yeah. could face you know, but it, it is a very specific kind of protesting, right? Yeah. Yes. And so yes. you you can protest without going so far to, there are protests where you have a permit and you do kinds of things and whatever. Yeah. Um, I have many friends who have been arrested um, and all of them knew they were going to jail when they did it, right? Right. Like, and so that's yeah. important. That's a, a lot of times, you know that this is a likely outcome, but you right. don't imagine in most places, it'll be a threat on your life, actually. Yeah. So sit-ins at 
the Senate or congressional offices or outside the White House, you know, things that you know are going to lead. And some people say, well, that is wrong, period. And, but, but part of it is, you know, there's this, there was one a few years ago that a friend of mine was involved in um, that was at the North Carolina State House when they were passing all the trans, you know, anti-trans stuff, the bathroom, whatever. And they were praying in the middle of the lobby, right? Like they were in a circle in the lobby while they, when they came in and arrested them. And, and again, they did that consciously, they did it, but it was to raise awareness of, it was their way of saying, hey, don't ignore this. This is happening right in front of our face, right? Isn't that what the January 6th protests were doing? Just praying and pointing out injustice? <laughs> With wolf's calves on and podiums in their hand and guns and other, you know, weapons gallows. going gallows. Get the gallows. Insert Brian and, being very facetious. And where is Mike Pence? Let's have his head and let yeah. show me. No, but that's a, but that's a great example, Shannon. Like, uh, and I have friends who are part of that too, right? They're praying, in, you know, and being arrested while praying for moral clarity to come upon elected officials. Exactly. Like it, like the, the juxtaposition there is just, it's too much. And I don't, and I don't want to say every cause, every moment that somebody gets arrested for civil disobedience is a proper and right, blah, blah, blah. Right. I don't want to say that. Sure. I'm saying I have many, many friends who have gone to jail for this. I am proud of them when they do. I admit it. Um, I also have friends when I have gone off to a protest who have said very clearly, like a lot of friends that I have who are ministers, but also therapists, mm -hmm. um, you would be in danger of losing your ethics license, your, your therapist license, if you are arrested or arrested X amount of times. Uh -huh. And so they say, God be with you. And I am with you in spirit, but I cannot go. Yeah. Um, and that I also understand, especially when I lived in Kentucky, that was true. When we protest in the early 2000s, the, um, the Gulf War, um, it was very likely that you would be arrested in those protests. Um, again, it's Kentucky, it was early 2000s, whatever. Right. Here in Maryland, I am very unlikely to be arrested in a protest. <laughs> very, very, very unlikely. Yeah. However, like, I, when I take my kids, I take them to a smaller, not the main downtown protest. I'll take them to a smaller neighborhood protest where yeah. we're with friends, where people are going to protect you, things like that. Um, we did not, I will fully admit this. We, um, we did not protest after George Floyd because of COVID. Like, yeah, yeah. That's that was also a safety issue that, yeah. and we are in now a city that since George Floyd, I have to say this, since George Floyd, not George Floyd, um, since, oh my God, Freddie Gray in mm -hmm. Baltimore, Baltimore's police have done their work, not in every sense of the word, but in protests. They do not show up in riot gear. They do, like, it is a peaceful protest. They, the police do not incite. They do their job because they have learned their lesson since Freddie Gray when they called in the National Guard and it was absolutely unnecessary that it went that far. And that was, that was the police showing up in riot gear and pushing these protesters to go farther and farther and farther. And it's not all the police fault, but it, we know statistically that when the police show up in riot gear, ready to go, that it is much more likely to incite yeah. a riot than it is a peaceful protest. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, 
Um, I have not considered myself being in prison. Like I don't go with the intention of being in prison. Um, I always knew it was, I always know when, even when I go to a protest that it might be a possibility, but I don't, um, I don't have a plan or anything, nor do I, I've never consciously, you know, gone out for civil disobedience and, but if I did, that's how I would do it. I would be very conscious to say, I'm going to cross the picket line for this reason. Like I'll say that if in some, you know, strange world, the folks who were perpetuating the big lie of the election being stolen, if somehow those votes had not been certified and the coup had, you know, been successful and somehow Trump was still president, I would have tried to get arrested like that. Oh, like arrest me now. Like this, this cannot stand. Yeah. If somehow like it, well, yeah, I think, I think, but I, the, the majority of the protests that I've gone to, um, and they have all been peaceful, have been for gun violence, have yeah. been for, um, there was, I've been in multiple women's rights marches, particularly when I was younger. And, um, uh, and um, of course, Black Lives Matter. Climate change. I haven't actually been to, I haven't actually been to climate change protests. I'll be honest about that. Um, but those three um and and recently my most recent was probably um after the shooting in florida um where the kids oh god my brain uh uh stoneman douglas the the yes uh, parkland parkland yes and the and and because now that i live closer to dc it's a lot honestly it's a lot more convenient i did i did a march in boston around that as well yeah um yeah because here in We'll have a march in Baltimore, but yeah, it's forty-five minutes away. Why don't we yeah, just go to DC? Yeah. I feel I can't. I feel I can't in good conscience go to a climate change protest until I clean up my own personal. That, and that's hard. Environmental Let's be honest, work, that's hard. right? That's re- that one's hard because you're like there with your iPhone filming, and you're like, oh god. <laughs> On social media, Tim asks, "What about protesting churches that foster hate or disinformation? What do you oh, think about that?" So this is my favorite. Yes. My favorite is the group of angels whose name I can't remember that when Westboro Baptist comes out yes. at a funeral and Just they show about up that too. with those big angel wings mm-hmm. and they block. Oh my God. It makes me cry. Just thinking about it. Like they block the Westboro Baptist protesters against the, like, oh my gosh, I would join those people in a heartbeat, in a yeah. heartbeat. They are true angels. I think that is the most sacred and beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't, I don't actually, I have a hard time actively. Uh, like, I, I don't know that I would go down to Joel Olstein's church and hand like with a picket sign out. Like it, as a clergy member, it feels weird, it. right. To go it to does. someone else's church to sort of. Well, well, I, I think in extreme cases, Westboro Baptist church is an extreme, like they're yeah. extreme, extreme. I don't know. I mean, but would I take a sign on Sunday morning and go stand outside their church and like, you're the devil? I I I would. I would. And and my sign would say something like, you know, this pastor loves you because you're gay. Like I would, you know, to as as a as a statistically, some of them are. Let's be honest. Let's let's be clear. But (laughs) but but what I'm saying is like. Yes, we hold up Westboro Baptist. Like many churches, many denominations are anti-gay. We we know this. Yeah, yeah. Um, b- but the Westboro 
church is one that is very public and very virulent about their anti-gayness, right? So, so yes, I think churches on that extreme. If there was, if there was a a church that was extreme anti-racial for some reason, like a white supremacist church, if there were churches that were really on that extreme, yes, I, I, I would, and and I yeah. think, and I think they should be picketed by church people to show that this is this is not the voice of what church is and should be for the majority of people. And maybe, maybe we should do more of that. Um, it's never, it's never really been in my consideration. I'll be honest, like people. So I know you all have, we all have national conventions like our denominations do mm-hmm. and people pick it outside of those. Um, actually that would make me more comfortable. Like if there was a denomination that had its like, you know, for whatever reason, if Southern Baptist conference had their denominational meeting here, like I, they're, that would be more natural for me than to go to an individual church. Does that make sense? Right. Like, yep. yeah. Um, and if you pick it outside of Joel Osteen's church, you lose a few, con- a few congregants. Cause you know, probably most of our congregants are big Joel Osteen fans anyways. So there's, there's, there's always that you would be and ask if you can use the restroom. There you go. You'd be surprised. I was legit surprised at how many when when I was in church, how many of my uni folks were Joel Osteen fans. I'm like, do y'all do y'all know about this guy? Or y'all just like okay. caught up caught up in the veneers and the and the and the cool haircut and the and the positivity books? Because before, I mean, before we end the show, and I get to end the show tonight. I well, my final word is a story about Derek when years ago when he worked at Barnes and Noble. And Joel Olstein was coming to sign books and they were having a staff meeting is my favorite story. They were having a staff meeting and his manager, the owner or whatever, whoever was telling them all like Joel Olstein's coming. He will sign Joel, like have all these books ready, all these Joel Olstein books ready. He will sign Joel Olstein books and he will sign Bibles. And Derek goes, but he didn't write it. Nice. I love it. In the middle of the staff meeting. I love exactly <laughs> signing Bibles. He told me that story, and I was like, <laughs> "Who signs Bibles?" <sighs> I mean, we, and I now we know, unfortunately. Now we know, and Trump did too. By the way, when yeah, Trump that's what I'm books, referring to. He yes. signs Bibles as well, and I was like, "How?" I mean, who do you think? Talk about putting ministers on. Talking about putting yourself on a pedestal. Who do yes. you think you are that you go out and sign <laughs> Bibles? And so that is, so yeah, maybe I will, I will go out there and with a <laughs> sign that says nobody signs my Bible, but Jesus, Joel Olstein. There you go. Um, but anyway, <laughs> oh my that's God. the end of that. So you can show your love for Pub Theology Live by becoming a supporter on Patreon. <laughs> Get access to pre and post show banter and more. Visit patreon.com slash PT Live and get started. And a big thank you to our current patrons. Listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Our top cities this week were New Orleans, Columbus, and Annapolis because nobody had anything to do after their loss. Straight yeah. up. <laughs> Watch us Tuesday on Facebook's around 4.30, even though we're recording on Monday. Find and create a pub theology in your own town. Info at pubtheology.com slash directory. Basically with live streaming, just stay on Facebook constantly and we will show up and pop up on live eventually. 
Until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. I'm going to put my mask on and go back into the danger zone. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so sorry. I hope everybody feels great. Thank you. Better. Can we send you dinner or something? No, people like, are covering that. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Jesus. I'm like sending dinner. Dude's a pastor for church. He's got people. I know. I know. I should know better. I really should. Oh. I really should. Oh. Okay. All right. Okay. See you guys. Bye, guys. All right. See you later. Bye.